Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Nightlight. I am really excited tonight to have an amazing man on with me, and um, it's it, it, all of you know that that uh, those of you that listen on a on a frequent basis that one of my loves and fascinations are the giants and and how they did exist and they they were for real and and history seems to have not um not brought them into the fore and certainly they aren't mentioned in our in our history books i taught school for 25 years and never saw a mention of one giant um i have jason jarell on with me tonight he's a published author and lecturer who's published articles with ancient origins alternative perspectives magazine road to ruins and ancient america magazine he's spoken publicly on such topics as the prehistory prehistoric certain sorry prehistoric cultures of america and the ancient north america giants He's also appeared on the Ancient Alien television program and his new book, which, which I have just finished reading and, and was phenomenal, is, call, is co-written with his wife, Sarah, and though we don't have her on the line with us, she did a great deal of the work on the book as well and took a lot of the photographs. Uh, the, the book is called um, Ages of the Giants, A Cultural History of the Tall Ones in Prehistoric America, which uses actual archaeological sources and academic data to trace the history of a remarkable people with a unique physicality over the span of over 4,000 years. You heard me, 4,000 years. Um, the book is amazing. It is, uh, we've all seen all of the, all of the newspaper articles from the 1800s. Um, they're all over the place. And they have taken these these uh, articles and they have authenticated them. They have documented them. They have really done an amazing amount of phenomenal research to put a bulk of work together that that is uh, well, it's history for sure, and it's a history that that most of us aren't even aware of. So let me before I get too far into this, welcome Jason. Welcome to the show. 
thank you, and thank you for reading the book and for your kind words. Oh, listen, I I insist on reading the books of of anybody that I talk to on this show. I I mean, the amount of work you put into this this work is phenomenal, and and to not honor that by actually reading it to me it just is is unheard of i couldn't possibly do it um it's your this book is is a topic that i have been fascinated with for years uh and and i i think i got into it uh because my husband uh my late husband patrick cooks of course spoke of the the 36 tribes of giants that were in the Bible and you have 36 tribes, they have to have gone somewhere or been something or, or whatever. And from that to, to the Britain Wiener cave in, in um, Bavaria, I think it is uh, where in 1576 or something, the townspeople went into the cave and found the bones of giants to the fact that they have been discovered all over this country. And there's really not a mention of them in any of the history books, which is horrifying. But, but then when you, you take the time to read through a book like yours, you realize that, we haven't even documented the the native the Native Americans or the indigenous peoples or whatever you want to call them. We really have no real knowledge of them either in any of our history books, and it's it's such a shame. You are absolutely correct. Um, and just to put this in perspective, as many accounts of the tall ones as we refer to them as we did include in the book and that we have been able to verify with some mainstream archaeological documentation, this book is only discussing the Great Lakes region and the Ohio Valley, and it's only covering about 4,000 years. When you consider that human history on this continent goes back tens of thousands of years, and we didn't even touch you know, the things that are in the south and on the west coast, that really puts the magnitude of this phenomenon in perspective. Well, it, it makes you, it, it makes me really sad that, that those who are reporting our history are not reporting it. And, you know, when you, when you speak of antiquity, you think of, you know, Egypt, Rome, Greece, those guys, but you, you don't even, they, they never go into anything here on, on, you know, North, the North American continent, it's almost like it was left absolutely empty for tens of thousands of years. And then the pilgrims came and there were a few groups of, of wandering Indians that, that happened to be here, but there weren't that, that many of them. And that's not the case. No, it's the educational system in the United States has kind of been hijacked. And anything that today, anything that doesn't just produce another slave on an assembly line is kind of thrown to the side. I know that while researching this book, I personally was blown away at the, at the elaborate cosmology that is reflected in the artifacts and the burial mounds and earthworks of the Adena and Hopewell mound builders in the Ohio Valley. This is a culture that deserves to be 
considered equal with the more famous examples from the old world. It's truly remarkable how we have something this incredible here in the United States, and it seems to be something that is now pigeonholed only in the domain of those who study it professionally. Well, yeah, and what really blows me away is, all right, for, for over, I'm, I'm just looking at, at basically the 1800s at this particular point in time, because the 1800s seems, early 1900s, but basically the 1800s seems to be when so many of these graves, these mounds were stumbled upon. And it it's horrifying to think that that we thought nothing of disturbing graveyards by plowing them under and building bridges and taking the stones and using them for gravel for all sorts of things. I mean, what, what happened, what, what is wrong with our culture that we don't have the respect for the, I mean, if somebody decided to plow graveyards under today, everybody would be up in arms and there would be all sorts of, you know, legal things going on and, you know, Oh, for God, you know, don't disturb our dead. But we, we thought nothing of, of destroying thousands of years of, of history um, to build a road. Well, that, that's something that actually persisted for a very long time. I recently did a presentation at the Serpent Mound in Ohio on the Tall Ones, and there was a retired archaeologist who had participated in his first excavation when he was 10 years old who came to, up to me after my presentation concluded, and he told me, and, and my team, my people were all there, he, he shared a story with us, about how in the 1960s he was involved in an excavation of an Adena burial mound in Ohio, and the lead archaeologist on the dig actually found the remains of one of these very large skeletons in the mound. And I asked him, I said, well, what do they do with the bones? And he said, well, he threw them in the trash. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the historical societies all the way up until around the 70s or 80s, as long as they could get by with it, they were very disrespectful with the materials that came from these burials. We've seen incidents of artifacts that were stolen right out of the mounds and disappeared on the black market, and that's happening 1960s, 1970s. So the attitude towards the, the graves of the ancients really had persisted for a very long time. Well, we're teaching our children to, to disrespect things like this, which is horrifying for me. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the um, history books, especially with the, the tribes that are out in the West, you know, they, they, they put their dead on platforms and they, they let them be, they sent them back to the great spirit or whatever. So that you didn't have a lot of burial stuff, but but these these are just I mean when you think it goes back four thousand years, um, you're talking you're talking you know Giza plateau stuff. You're talking you're talking way back in time and yes and these these were a people that that were you know we we talk about we talk about our pioneers who were carving into the into the um, the unknown and stuff like this. Well, hell. They weren't carving into the unknown. They were walking across the graves of those that had come before and with no respect for them. 
Well, the, the you're absolutely right. The, the cultural legacy is really amazing because just with the first book, the oldest instance of the discovery of gigantic skeletons that is mentioned in the book comes from a site in the St. Lawrence Seaway that dates to around 3,500 B.C., and this is closely followed by several sites of the old copper culture in Wisconsin, Michigan, southern Ontario, and those sites date to around 3,000 B.C., and what a lot of people may not realize is how advanced ancient people in North America actually were. Uh, for example, there have been copper tools found, very advanced copper tools for hunting and fishing that have been found in North America dated back as far as 5,700 or 6,000 B.C. And that's 3,000 years earlier than most other people around the world were fabricating copper tools for practical use. So even from a technological standpoint, the cultural heritage here is is quite remarkable. Well, and I, I think that we do our, our children a disservice by not talking about things like the copper mines up in, in Michigan and Minnesota, which I think they, they have... Um, I don't know why, but 9,000 years comes into mind. So I think it is something they've been in, in production for at least 9,000 years. Now, in order to be mining, you have to have uh, a, lot, a lot greater intellect than, than a lot of other things. You have to be able to spot the rocks that have the copper in them. You have to be able to realize that you can hammer it out, that you can – I mean, the, the – uh, the copper from those mines was, I think, 99% pure, or some of it was anyhow. And it just, it, it boggles my mind to think that, that, that we have this rich culture here in the United States that, that for whatever the reasons we are, we are teaching our children to ignore. And, and we're not giving them the respect, the, the people that, that, literally were the beginnings of our DNA. I mean, it, it, that's where we come from. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it was, it, it, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't all, you know, come over on a ship and, you know, come over on the Mayflower. And, and you know, there, there is no such thing, I do not believe today, as a pure bloodline of any kind. We, well, you know, we're, the, we are okay. all... Um, sort of the product of many lineages that's very true and you know the the fact is the you mentioned the copper mining i would also add to that you're you're talking about you know the organization and the skill that it takes just for that practice as as we found in our research several people have conducted independent scientific examinations of the copper artifacts in the Great Lakes region and found that some of these artifacts were manufactured by melting and casting. And that goes completely contrary to what you would learn in a university about the copper artifacts because in the university circuit we're taught that Native Americans never attained that level of technological advancement. But we know from several scientific examinations that indeed some of them did. So Mm -hmm. 
this is this is an issue that really comes down to in the 1900s the determination was made to define all ancient cultures in North America as barbaric. In fact, it goes back to the 1879 paper from the Bureau of Ethnology at the Smithsonian, which instructed field agents to interpret everything they found as barbaric. And so what happens is we have well over a century of academia that's built around this idea, and no one really feels like being the person that comes along and says, actually, that's not true. It's more the opposite. Well, and what what gets you is the artifacts that are being that have been dug up, that that are still in the public venue, and there aren't that many of them. It appears. Um, the the okay, so we've got we've got arrowheads out of stone that were you know flint flinted out of stone and stuff. But there are also spear points. There are also fish hooks. There are also those those um, decorations they wore around their necks. There's also bracelets and and all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, copper um, accoutrements that, that are buried with these people. And not only that, their, their burials, they didn't just shove people in pits. They created graveyards and grave sites, these, the mounds that you, that you talk about in, in your area of the country there. Um, they weren't just thrown like our cemeteries, you know, you put them in a box and you shove them in the ground, but these people were buried. Um, there was, there was ceremony. There was, uh, they, a lot of them had, they were wrapped in birch bark, uh, and, and they were, they were, they were laid in certain ways, whether they were sitting or whether they were whole or whether they were, um, Reburying a group of bones that had been buried someplace else, but there was a respect for their dead that, that in some ways I think it was greater than the way we lay people to the re- to rest. I mean, they had um, artifacts with them. They had things to take with them into the next world. I mean, there 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 was so much more to uh, a person's life then than there appears to be today. You know, that's a remarkable observation. I really appreciate that because as I studied during this research, the Adena culture, the mound builders in the Ohio Valley between 1000 B.C. and 300 A.D., I began to develop a deep appreciation for these people. You know, I was studying what they ate, how they lived, the clothing they wore, their basketry, and identifying with them across the ages as human beings was a very important experience because there's this idea today that these tall ones, these giants, are somehow either some sort of hybrid race or abomination, and it simply isn't true. These were certainly people, and you mentioned their respect for their dead. I'd like to point out that the prevailing theory is that many of those artifacts that they're buried with that you mentioned, those probably weren't personal possessions of the people buried. Those were possessions that the mourners and the families of the dead actually deposited in the tomb with them as a way of paying their respects. Um, And just to elaborate further on what you said about how incredible these sites are, I would like to describe what I think is probably 
one of the greatest archaeological sites in North America. Um, this sure. Is, well, this is a burial mound. Just to give the audience an idea of the types of things which have actually been found here, uh, this is a burial mound from northeastern Ohio. It's called the North Benton Mound. This mound was 75 feet in diameter and 7.5 feet high when it was excavated in 1939. And what they found was that the builders had completely stripped the ground surface and created a paved surface of sandstone as a floor. And within the earthen limits of the mound, just inside the earth of the mound, the excavators discovered a circular stone wall that basically encircled the entirety of the mound's inner features. This is a megalithic stone circular wall inside the mound. Now, just inside the megalithic stone circle within the mound was a post circle 70 feet in diameter. On the western side of the mound, the excavators found a corridor consisting of two parallel rows of posts that ran from an entryway to the central area of the mound. And in the east, directly opposite the corridor, they discovered a large eagle effigy made of stone that measured 32 feet between the wings and 16 feet from the tail to the head. And there were two burials, each placed in one of the wings of the eagle. In the southern wing, excavators found an extended male skeleton on a clay platform, and these remains were described in 1940 by the archaeologist as an abnormally large male, and in 1945, the same archaeologist referred to this skeleton as an extremely large male with massive bones. And the North Wing burial was a female who was close to six feet tall. And at the feet of both of these skeletons in the wings of the eagle were found the fragments of crushed human skulls. In another section of the mound, there was a large megalithic tomb containing the remains of an older male still holding in its hands a copper panpipe. And there are numerous artifacts and features from this mound. I could talk about this single mound site all day, but that should give you an idea of just how incredible some of these archaeological sites really are. They hold their own with anything else in the ancient world. Oh, absolutely. And you've got a, a chart of this particular site in your book. And um, it's, it's, it's profound to look at. I mean, n none of us would be able to bury our dead with that much ceremony and with that much you know it, it it does take you back almost to ancient Egypt to a degree as far as the different aspects to what were there and is this one of those that I, I think there were a couple that that it almost uh, there was a trench around the um around the site as for water so that in many ways it was it was kind of like you know the dead had to cross the water in in order to get to the to the other side well, those, that is a type of Adena mound that we see at sites like Marietta, Ohio, some of the Adena mounds in Chillicothe. 
and several of the mounds here in West Virginia. And what we're talking about is the, the burial mound would be built inside of what archaeologists call a sacred circle. And in the Adena culture, a sacred circle is basically a circular earth wall with an interior ditch. And it usually features one entryway. The entryway is like a causeway. Uh, inside of these structures, the Adena people probably engaged in various ceremonies and ritual practices for an unknown length of time. And then on some occasions, they would construct a burial mound inside the circle. So that combination of the mound and circle is a recurring type of earthwork during that time period in the first millennium B.C. And it's really quite interesting to, to read about the possible meanings of these earthworks. Several archaeologists have speculated that it could represent a cross-section of the Axis Mundi in the mound builder cosmology. And um, I've also seen some ethnographic papers that talk about the possibility that the trench and the ditch may have filled with water at different times to represent a water barrier, because in several Native American cosmologies, the dead do not pass over water, so it was sort of a barrier to retain the dead. Ah. Now, in some of these sites, there are different layers of burials, so that, you know, a single mound could have um, burials of, of, you know, different time frames and ages. So mm-hmm. that, and, and the other thing that I found fascinating was that in some of these mounds, it looked as though different communities were meeting to bury their dead or, or their respected dead um, in, in mounds so that, so that their dead in many ways united their communities as, as one. Yes. That is the cosmology that held these cultures together for many thousands of years. When it comes to the burial mounds, the, the concept is that, these people lived in dispersed hamlets throughout river valleys here in the Ohio Valley. And each dispersed hamlet consisted of several families who lived hunter-gatherer lifestyles. And in the earlier times, each smaller group had its own burial mound, and they would inter their dead in that mound throughout the years and probably used that mound for several generations. But what happened after about 200 B.C. was these large ritual landscapes consisting of multiple burial mounds began to appear, such as the one here at Charleston, West Virginia, where I live. And at these sites, multiple communities would gather on a ritual basis to bury their dead together at these sites, probably because in burying their dead together, they were symbolically adopting a common ancestry and heritage. And it was this concept of the ancestors being united, of having a common ancestry, which really allowed these cultures to exist for so long and in so many different forms. Well, and the other thing I found interesting was that in in 
in one mound you could have um, people who who were interred with their flesh, and then there would be just bundles of bones, and then there would be evidence of cremated um, people, so that so that they had different ways of of putting their dead together, which was fascinating as well. Yes, uh, there are several possibilities which could account for those three major types of burial. In some instances, and it's important to remember that with these cultures, diversity is the key word because the expression of this ritualism is very diverse and it varied between region. But in some instances, it may be that particular communities or lineages buried their dead in the local mound in a certain way. So those people may have bundled their dead, whereas another community may have cremated their dead to deposit them in the same mound. Another possibility, and the one that I actually favor, is the way the dead were deposited in the burial mound may have reflected the process that the community considered that person's spirit to be going through at that moment in time. For example, we know that some Native American communities believe in reincarnation, so it's possible that burying a body in a certain method or processing a body in a certain method may have represented whether or not that person was believed to be returning at some point. Ah, that's fascinating. Well, I, I think several several of the things that, that, you know, just blew me away, certainly when you, you know, the further back you go, the more primitive the artifacts that you are able to pick up from from these sites becomes but the later you get it it was it was fascinating not only was there copper but there were often um um crystals that were there there were mica was put into some of them i mean it, it the the quality of of their artwork was it more greatly enhanced the, the further you got towards current time but but it it was so impressive to me. And one thing that I, I sat and chuckled over, um, a lot of the artifacts, you know, you said there, there were pipes. There were clay pipes and stuff like that. And I'm sitting here thinking, wait, there was no tobacco. What were they smoking in the pipes? Um, <laughs> yes, you well, want to tell us what they were smoking? <laughs> yes, they have recently found nicotine stains inside of an Adena pipe. Really? We know that they were smoking tobacco. It is entirely possible, in my opinion, that they were also smoking other substances. We know that the shamanistic or ritual practices of these cultures relied heavily on altered states of consciousness. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, I have written a lengthy segment for my contribution to Chapter 6 in this book that discusses how Adena shamans basically transformed into animal-like beings in the minds of ritual participants. And we know that because we found their costumes in many of their tombs, where they would have masks made from the jaws or skulls of certain animals and other types of regalia made from exotic substances. Uh, But it, it is possible that hallucinogens or anything that could cause an altered state of consciousness could have been employed. But we also know that 
just the act of smoking tobacco could have been a sacred a sacred practice for ritual specialists mm-hmm. also. Yeah, I, I would say it was not only probable, it was very possible they were using the hallucinogens because most cultures um, found something that put them into an altered state where they could talk to uh, the spirits and those who had gone before. Um, I, I think that that it's it's fascinating to to look at what they treasured and what they felt were um, precious items to send people on to whatever their their future was. Obviously, they had a there was a spirituality here that was profound because otherwise they wouldn't have valued, you know, the body, you know, when, once the spirit was gone, they wouldn't have been so careful with the body. They would have just ignored it and let the birds take their share. But, but they, they were reverent. They were, there was a spirituality here in these mounds that probably is, is very profound and, and, I would suspect that that in a lot of sites you probably have vortexes of some energy vortexes of some sort where where someone has identified a a, a source of power to to put put to put their people who had passed over on in order to help them transition to the next plane. Well, the the mound builders here in the Ohio Valley transformed the entire face of the landscape. There are very few places that were untouched by these people. The earthworks are very advanced. And regardless of what anyone says today, no one really understands the full purpose of these works. You know, we All we can do is look at them and speculate. But what's important to remember about that and what's very encouraging is that your interpretation of what all this means is just as valid as anyone else's. The establishment today is very good at sort of whacking people on the head for making suggestions about these sites when they themselves don't know anything about their purpose or intent. Well, when you when you stop and think, okay, these were some of they were hunter gatherers. They they you know they're they lived with nature. They they lived as a part of nature. And yet when you take a look at these mounds and the fact that a lot of these, these uh, the remains were laid on slabs of stone, that there was great care in, in the construction of these. And it didn't happen overnight, and they didn't have front loaders or anything like that. They were carrying this, they were doing this by hand with tools that were that were not easy to work with. And in order to create these mounds, it took a community to do it. It wasn't it wasn't like you dig a hole and shove somebody in it. Well, many times we find evidence that the dead were actually curated for an unknown length of time. For example, the Adena and Hopewell people are often found with what used to be called trophy skulls. In other words, we will find a burial, and with the burial, there's a stray skull in there. And The old interpretation was, well, these must have been war trophies. But recent research has shown that they're not war trophies. They are the skulls of people who may have died 100 years before the person who was buried with the skull and may have been an ancestor of that person. Oh, wow. So these practices are so persistent and timeless among these ancients. There are Adena sites on the East Coast 
in Delaware, Maryland, and New Jersey, where they have found bones that appear to have been dug up somewhere else, transported to the site, and reburied. And to be quite honest, I can't help but wonder if those bones were not dug up here in the Ohio Valley and taken all the way to the East Coast to be reburied with migrating Adena people. There's a long tradition, uh, not just in the ancient cultures, but in modern Native American tribes have been witnessed transporting the bones or the bodies of the dead to sacred sites for burial together. And it appears to be something that is tens of thousands of years old. Well, it, it does seem, among other things, that while the, they weren't, I wouldn't call them nomadic people, but they were hunter-gatherers, and they probably did move around to a certain degree as far as weather and stuff like that goes. I mean, when you're talking Michigan, you're talking winters that were awful. I lived in Michigan for a while. I know what those winters are like. Um, so, frankly, I, I would have become a snowbird of some sort, I think, if I had a choice there. But, but I, the one thing that 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 has, I I have often thought um, that there were tribes of giants, and yet, uh, I know you call them a sub a subculture, and yet. You know, I I'm, I keep wondering, these people of very large stature, seven feet, eight feet, and, and above, are mixed in with all of the other bodies as well. It's not like you're, I mean, have you found sites that are just the the tall people? It, 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 seems, it seems to me that you have over 4,000 years that these people, these tall people, are mixed in with everybody else, which, you know, is confusing. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, first of all, what I'd like to say is that of the four major cultures that we're describing in this first book, the tall ones represent a segment of the overall population, and they are a segment of the population that is mixed with the rest of the population in no discernible manner whatsoever. So we may find a site where one of the large skeletons is buried in a mound with 50 other people, but the large skeleton has no artifacts, which means that that giant, as many people would refer to it, that giant has no visible markers of authority or rank, whereas other people in the same mound do. However, we have other sites, like the Cresap Mound here in Marshall County in West Virginia. The large skeleton that was excavated by Don Dragoo of the Carnegie Museum from the Cresap Mound was buried with numerous artifacts, including prestigious elements like beads, other things that would possibly represent some type of rank or social position. So they appear to have been among the population at large. They were biologically related to the communities which they were a part of, but they had no particular status that was always assigned to them on a consistent basis. They seem to have the same um, 
I mean, because they were larger, their bones were denser. I mean, you know, that just stands to reason. They got a lot, they, they have to have stronger bones in order to support larger bodies. Um, their, their skulls were the same. I mean, you're, and, and I, I am reminded about when, when, um, when the, the, the little kid in North Korea took over when his father died, um, and they had a picture of, of the army all lined up, you know, paying him homage. You saw, yes. you know, you saw little person, little person, and then suddenly there's this, whoa, and then there's little person, little person. It, it, it's almost as though, I mean, they're still out there today. I mean, we have basketball players that are seven, eight feet tall. Well, my colleague, Greg Little, has done a fantastic job of, debunking the the popular explanation for this phenomenon in ancient times that these people are just the basketball players of 2,000 years ago. Um, he's published several articles on alternate perceptions web, website about this. But that being said, I think one of the reasons for the misconceptions on this subject are that people really don't realize what the reality is behind the myth. There's a lot of literature out there that talks about recurring finds of 10 and 13 feet tall skeletons from these old press reports and what the actual excavation reports tell us that we reference in our research is that the tall ones were usually people between seven and eight feet in height. And then there's a lesser number who were eight feet and above, probably with nine feet being the maximum. And so getting a real bearing on what this phenomenon actually is, is very important. Well, is it a genetic anomaly? Is it an inherited thing? And, and you, one thing too, that um, that that in whatever reason, well, in my knowledge, I wouldn't call it research, but when I'm fascinated on something, I do as yeah research. Um, in the Bible, it talks about six digits on each hand and foot, and a double row of teeth, and that's been pretty standard for a lot of the material that I've read. Even in the Bible, it mentions that. Um, Of course, the Bible is not exactly a great reference book as far as history goes, but, um, but in, in a lot of the findings on the, that have been attributed to a giant skeleton or whatever, there, there are those double rows of teeth and those extra digits. And, um, you and and the other the other thing was was um, fair skin and possibly red to blonde hair. Um, I've met a couple of people that have those qualities and actually have the extra digits and the double rows of teeth. And I'm wondering, is that something you didn't mention it? Um, I mean, it's mentioned briefly, but it's not mentioned as being a consistent. Is this something that you found or not? Okay. Well. In the context of what we're trying to do is I can only report on what I have seen archaeological verification for. Mm -hmm. And and in those contexts, I can tell you that there is no instance of the extra digits in the North American 
it with the tall ones in North America. The double rows of teeth that many of the 1800s accounts reported, in my opinion, and, and it's just my opinion, I believe that these people were exaggerating a phenomenon that we actually do see in the literature where many of the Adena people and their ancestors from the late Archaic period had as many as four extra teeth. But I do not see any instance of a full double or even a, even a triple row of teeth, as some of the newspaper articles mention. Mm-hmm. I've never seen an instance of that in any of the Adena skulls that we've studied or the skulls of their ancestors. But there is a recurring tendency of one to four supernumerary teeth in the lower and sometimes upper jaws of the skeletons. So maybe some of the people in the 1800s were perhaps exaggerating some of these finds. Well, I, I, I would imagine you dig something up while you're plowing a field and you see something as large as these bones okay. actually were. I mean, the, it's a very, the one of the common things that I have seen written over and over again was the skull was so large, you could, a, a full-sized man could put the, the jawbone over his own head and it would rest on his shoulders. I mean, and that's big. And Well, the... The phenomenon of people placing those jawbones over their own faces, I think, has some basis in reality. We know that even, as we cite in in the book, there are numerous anthropologists who wrote about how massive the lower jawbones were, of not only of the tall ones, but of all the people in some of these populations. Well, I would I would think to survive in in the kind of environment that they had to that it, there, there was definitely a case of the uh, survival of the fittest and that would mean the strongest too yes the the people from just if we're looking at Kentucky uh, the Adena skeletons from the mounds in Kentucky have repeatedly been described and, and found remarkable for their rugged and powerful build we know that this was a very muscular and powerful population in fact I've seen mound reports from different parts of the Ohio Valley where many of the Adena females were also over six feet in height. At the McKees Rocks Mound in Pennsylvania, there were several female skeletons found that were between six foot two and seven feet in length. So this was definitely a a prominent set of characteristics in the, the gene pool, these powerful builds. Well, and, and when you stop to think about it, look at today. You know, if you are a tall person, you're looking for another tall person to be to to um, to be mated to, and and so it would it would be a natural thing for the the very large to, and and I don't mean fat, I mean large, um, to seek a mate that was of equal standing, so to speak, so that so that that they would probably DNA wise their children would most likely have the same attributes. So that so You're that, absolutely you know. right. That is absolutely right. And the I'd also like to point out in case anyone's wondering, this is not giantism. The for one thing, these traits occur much too frequently 
these unique physical types to be accounted for with giantism. The bones were studied by a physical anthropologist and mainstream archaeologist in the 20th century who commented on how remarkably robust and powerful the people were. The bones had marked eminences for muscular attachment, so these were very athletic people. Now, now we have the mounds all over this country, um, but but definitely in Ohio Basin and stuff like that. There, I mean, there is a plethora of them. Um, are there any other places in the world where there have been mound build, builders that have had similar types of construction to their to their um, graveyards? The on a superficial le- level. Many of the earthworks here in the Ohio Valley are dramatically similar to the Western European burial mounds, uh, including the concept of a conical burial mound that's surrounded by an earth wall and ditch, which is a phenomenon that we see in the Wessex culture in the British Isles from about 2100 B.C. down to 1500 B.C., and early on in my own research, I used to consider that maybe these cultures and these people were the same people. There's so many similarities in the earthworks. Also, very large skeletons have also been found in the burial mounds in, in the British Isles and in Central Europe also. But when we look deeper into the material culture and settlement patterns, and also the genetics of the different populations that built these structures, we see that they were actually completely different people who lived totally different lifestyles, but who seem, for whatever the reason, to have somehow had a very similar cosmology and view of the cosmos. So what the earthworks are really telling us is that ancient people around the world shared a common world view of the structure of the cosmos, and that was reflected in burial monuments throughout the ages. Well, what I found also fascinating was, you know, the the very oldest of the mounds don't seem to be um, astronomically located as far as rising sun and setting sun, but as as you get closer and closer to um, ground zero, two thousand years ago, they they do seem to take on um, a more a more cosmic understanding of the stars and astronomy. And um, Orion's Belt comes in here over and over again with some of them as well, which which I found fascinating because we're talking no instruments. We're talking a culture where you really had to work very hard to survive, and yet. They had a knowledge and understanding and and a connection to things that were, you know, in out in the cosmos, not just here on Earth. That's correct. And the the cosmology that we see when we look at the old artifacts and burial mounds, all we have left are the remains of tombs and grave objects, but even that is enough to show us how sophisticated the inhabited universe that they believed that they lived in really was. We're talking about 
a viewpoint that incorporated a multi-tiered cosmos of three major realms, it's easily comparable to Norse mythology or the Egyptian cosmos or anything else for that matter. It's truly extraordinary. Well, yeah, and that's 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 another part of the whole thing. You, uh, they they did have that concept of the three levels, and they did have the concept of the tree of life. And to me, you know, history books tell us that the early indigenous people here were primitive. And I'm sorry, when you have that kind of a spiritual concept of an understanding of another dimension and then a lower dimension and then the the here and the now, that takes you way out of primitive and puts you into a more spiritual, philosophical um, outlook on life. It was completely philosophical. And we also, as evidence of what you're talking about, we know that during the period of roughly 300 B.C. all the way to 500 A.D., which is when the majority of the earthworks that we're talking about today were built, this was a period of relative peace in the Ohio Valley. You know, there's next to no evidence of warfare. There's little to no evidence of human sacrifice or any of that business. There is zero evidence of cannibalism. Some people think that all the tall ones were some type of race of cannibals, (laughs) I can assure you that there is no evidence in the Ohio Valley that these people engaged in cannibalism as a cultural practice. So these people were largely peaceful, and their society actually seems to collapse around 450 A.D. because social roles were becoming institutionalized. So as their society became more like ours, for example, as their healers became part of a medical industry, as their agents of exchange became economic advisors, as their hunters became generals, approximately one-third of the people just decided to completely walk out on the whole show. Wow. You know, it, it, you 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 get to that point when, and let me let me go even back further in history where you you had the um, the society, the group of people um, early on. I think one of the most primitive time frames, you know, way back three thousand years or so BC, um, where where the element of being in control or being you know uh, the boss depended on what what it was the group was going to do you know if you were if you were really good at construction then then you became the boss of everybody while you were constructing something but if it mm-hmm. was a matter of hunting then then somebody else became the boss and and so the 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 power was was shared by everyone depending upon what their abilities were you're correct. The, and that's something that we found very remarkable about Adena societies. There are a lot of researchers today who have completely rejected the concept that these people had chiefs or lineages of chiefs or elite rulers. And I happen to agree with them because when I look at the burial patterns in the mounds and I see the placement of artifacts with certain people, what we're seeing is a hetarchy. 
Uh-huh. And in a, a hierarchical society, it's precisely as you said, you may have someone who's the leader of the hunt, and that's a very important role because we know how important that hunt was for these people. Well, that hunt leader would exercise authority during the seasonal hunts, but once they got back to the village, this individual did not continue to wield some type of power over the rest of the people. The same was true of the healer. The healer became active and asserted their skills and authority when they were needed. But as soon as a sickness was taken care of, then the healer did not continue to exert authority over the rest of the people. And what happens as the woodland period progresses is that gradually these roles are broken up and institutionalized, and they become prestigious. We see prestigious artifacts made of copper and different exotic materials which represent those roles, so we know that the people who were now engaged in these roles were seen as a type of elite, and it is at precisely that moment that their culture completely disappears. It's a little scary. Maybe we should take notes on that. Well, this is the spirit of the land, and I know this may sound strange to people, but the fact that this was a process that happened with the ancients who are who lived exactly where we're living right now should serve as a warning to us today. No, I totally agree. I just, you know, it, <clears throat> and what is it, those who, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it? Precisely. I mean, we, we we certainly may be on on one of those those collision courses here that that it seems really important for us to pay attention to because i mean i you i mean i have to admit you've destroyed my belief in the tribes of giants which is very sad but um but but very appropriate <laughs> i mean i don't want to go out there preaching you know i i can still say there were giants in the land and and to be honest with you from from very early on right through current time frames, there are still giants in the land. And there are. So so it's it's uh you haven't totally destroyed it. But you know, I I I kind of when you talk when they talk about the Bible and the Canaanites and everything, you think, Holy mackerel, were there really was there really a whole culture of them? And mm-hmm. you know, the the reality is there wasn't a culture of them. They were a part of whatever culture they existed in. That's correct. They were a part of the Native American gene pool, and that's something that we intend to prove with our the newest phase of our work. That's what we're focused on, and we're going to show people who their living descendants are. And a, a very important aspect of this is I feel as if it has fallen to us to sort of liberate these people from some of the mythologies that have been associated with them. But the the really amazing thing is that the the mystery folks the mystery is not only real it's bigger than you thought it was mm-hmm. we're we're talking about not a specific tribe or race of giants we're talking about the tall ones as a persistent timeless aspect of the native americans own history and you can find them from the west coast to the East Coast, from Canada all the way to Mexico. Okay, so maybe I can I can I can 
do that instead of my tribes of giants. It's probably a lot more authentic and it probably will go a lot further as far as being able to prove it because uh, the, the aspect, again, it's another one of these things that, that is so important for Arch. I have grandchildren and I, I hate the thought that my grandchildren are being taught in school that, you know, they were the Native Americans that rode horses and shot bows and arrows. And that's not who they're, who the history is. I mean, that's part of it, certainly. But, but some of these burials, I mean, they had strings of beads. They had hammered copper jewel, jewelry. And, you know, not everybody walked around with dangle bracelets and everything, but they were, they were, they were pieces of honor that, that showed a richness and, 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 and intelligence that went far beyond what we give them credit for. Far well, I beyond. Think that, you know, I could probably help you with this by saying that I have actually studied cultures around the world. For example, I have eight chapters ready for a book on Indo-Europeans that we're planning on putting out at some point. And something I would like to to say on your behalf and, and to the audience, the Adena and Hopewell cultures and their predecessors in the Old Copper cultures of the Great Lakes, their culture was, if we're going to look at the material culture, the things that you just mentioned, like the exotic artifacts and the copper artifacts, their culture was more sophisticated and vibrant than the Copper Age cultures of Europe. That makes me that, feel good. <laughs> that should really open people's eyes to the rich history of North America. I consider North America at this point to be the greatest mystery of ancient times. I totally, absolutely agree with you. Because when, when you know, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, Egypt, you know, okay. But, but North America was not an empty continent. It was full of rich, phenomenal cultures that 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 we are not paying attention to. We are not we are not teaching our children about, and and it's a richness that that is that is not only a love of the land and nature. And, and these people were one with nature. They didn't have smog. They didn't have um, internet. They didn't have, you know, they, they had a purity of life, a oneness with nature that is something that, that we totally lack today. And we are absolutely, um, uh, you know, we, we have shortchanged ourselves as far as the, the connections with time that would give us a richer understanding of where us as a society we need to go in order to really get to a place where we have that, that, that balance between the spiritual and the physical and, and, you know, the metaphysical Um, it's, we've lost that profound and it's, it's very obvious that they had it because of their reverence for those that had passed away and their ancestors and, and how they honored them. And, you know, they were doing just fine before, before the Europeans invaded and screwed it all up. Well, you mentioned European invasions. I'd like to point out that the answer to this mystery of the tall ones and the disappearance of of people like this from history, it may have something to do with how we live. And what I mean by that is 
we know that the Iron Age Europeans, Indo-Europeans during the Iron Age, there were still people of this type of build and genetic expression among our own ancestors all the way up to the Iron Age because the Roman generals wrote about them in their field reports. There were Celtic mm-hmm. people Celtic people twice the twice the size of some of the greatest Roman soldiers. But what happened is Rome, the type of civilization represented by Rome, if we want to call it a civilization, says that we have to build roads and parking lots and concrete temples on top of everything that's green. There's not a forest that there's not a forest in the world that doesn't exist for us to chop it down, right? Mm-hmm. So it may be that this way of interacting with nature has some type of impact on our own DNA that we fail to understand. And it could be that the introduction of a European way of life to North America contribute, contributed to the downfall of these types of people existing in the Native American population, because we know from the accounts of the early explorers and early Europeans that there were still the tall ones among Native Americans well after European contact. We actually have found several rare diaries where they were witnessed building burial mounds and burying very large people in the mounds well into the 1700s. Well, we have the Europeans to thank for smallpox, for the plague, and syphilis. I mean, among just among the very few things they 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 brought disease to this continent. Um, not that there probably wasn't something here, but but it wasn't until the Europeans decided to discover us and and uh, colonize us that that this kind of tragedy. Um, hit Indian tribes who had no, absolutely no immunity to some of the things that, that the Europeans brought over here. So, um, not the, you know, I have, I have, you know, ancestors that came over to colonize. So, you know, I guess I'm partly to blame too, but, but, you know, when you get down to it, the, the element of earthing, are you familiar with that? Not really. Um, it's, it's, they've got a book out on it that, 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 really speaks of it's important for us to walk barefoot on the soil to reconnect with the earth because once you reconnect with the earth you know physically you you your heartbeat matches that of the earth and that that you know the the early the early people that were here um had that kind of connection and they didn't have the kind of illness and they didn't have the kind of anxieties that that we do today and and some sometimes We've we've lost touch because we we live in buildings that have you know wooden floors and we wear rubber soled shoes and we've we've lost the touch with the earth and and I, I don't want to be like Walden and say simplify 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 but I do say that that there is a a reverence and a respect for the earth that we have lost that would put us more in touch with our own spiritual nature that would enhance our our lives profoundly if we got back to it, but I won't go on that subbox right now. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I did want to get into was, um, was our culture here in the United States and, and what happened in the early 1900s that, that changed 
a great deal as far as I'm talking about eugenics and what happened with the bones and the artifacts of some of these people and why they disappeared and, and what happened to our culture as a whole. Well, um, there is a, a belief today that some of us who are awake are struggling against the implementation of something that people call the New World Order. But the unfortunate reality is that the New World Order has been here for well over a 100 years. And it happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And this really actually has a lot to do with what happened to the bones of the tall ones and why they're no longer acknowledged in academia, if you'd like to get into that. Um, yeah, I would, because I think it's important people understand what happened. Okay, well, first I should point out that what people refer to as the cover-up actually occurred around 100 years ago. From the 1800s up until the early 1900s, the Smithsonian and all the other institutions in the U.S. openly acknowledged and reported the discovery of the tall ones. They are in hundreds of papers and archaeological reports. So it was not a controversial issue until the policy of denial, which emerged from out of the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian when a man named Elise Hertlichka became the curator of the department in 1910. So Hertlichka was an anthropologist from Czechoslovakia, and he had been at the Department of Anthropology since around 1903. And Hertlichka's Department of Anthropology was very concerned with what types of humans had inhabited North America in ancient times. And Herdlichka became the first giant's denier. In his public interviews, he would disparage the existence of the Tall Ones. He also did so in many of his published reports on skeletal remains and anthropology. He always took the time to take a shot at people who believed that the Smithsonian had unearthed these remains. And so, under his guidance, the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian engaged in a full-blown denial of the existence of the skeletons unearthed by its own agents. And one of the things that's interesting about that is we found several reports which talk about the discovery of these large skeletons, and they were shipped directly to Herdlichka himself, so we know he was actually seeing some of these bones that were unearthed during his tenure. But the key to understanding Elie Serdlichka is in the fact that he was a prominent member of the American Eugenics Society. And for those who don't know, the American Eugenics Society was funded by Rockefeller, Carnegie, and the Harriman families. It sought the eradication of the poor, minorities, and essentially all bloodlines in the United States not of Nordic or Anglo-Saxon descent. A part of this program included the elimination of Native Americans, African Americans, Jews, Hispanics, and Caucasians who were of Southern Italian and East European heritage. 
Also, if your family had experienced more than one generation of poverty, you also became a target. So the American Eugenics Society had targeted over 14 million Americans for elimination. And in order to sell their agenda to the public, they employed anthropologists for or, from organizations like the Smithsonian and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And what they wanted from these people was for the anthropologists to organize the ancient humans from all over the world into a type of a racial hierarchy so that they could categorize different types of humans and then excuse themselves for eliminating those they thought were inferior. So American history at this point becomes quite barbaric. There were over 60,000 people sterilized in 27 U.S. states. Some medical institutions engaged in lethal neglect. The Institution for the Feeble-Minded in Lincoln, Illinois, gave patients milk from a herd of cattle infected with tuberculosis, for example, which increased mortality rates by 40%. This and is the by, United States now. I, you know, I want yes. everybody to understand, this is the United States in yes, the 1800s. Ma'am. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's correct. Um, by 1911, the Carnegie Institute the American Breeders Association and the United States Department of Agriculture had partnered together to outline plans to build lethal gas chambers in public to begin eliminating living people that they felt were unworthy of life. So since they were using anthropology to justify these types of programs, it's possible that their agents in the Smithsonian, people like Ailes Herlichka, had decided to ignore or conceal evidence of an anthropologically superior people ancestral to Native Americans. Because what a lot of people may not realize is that eugenics was merely the practical side of an older philosophy called Arianism. And according to the philosophy of Arianism, superior racial stocks had ancestors of gigantic stature, so they couldn't very well have ancient ancestors of the Indians reaching seven and nine feet in height, according to their own race religion. And um, we could get into Arianism. It's, It's really fascinating. I hope that this is helping to clarify some of the things that happened. Yeah, it is, definitely. I, I don't think people know about this, and I, I think there are going to be a whole bunch of people that are going to start fact-checking you, but keep going. Good, excellent. Fact-check me, um, because I can do this all day. The We know that the mainstream educational system teaches us that eugenics was something that Francis Galton gave us, and... We know that it developed into the scientific racialism that eventually spawned the Third Reich and the American Eugenics Society. But what a lot of people seem to be ignorant of, through no fault of their own really, is that eugenics is only the practical side of a type of religion that the elites in the late 1800s had embraced called Arianism. So... 
one of the primary architects of Arianism was a French anthropologist named Georges Vacher de Lepage. And Lepage was also a law student who, after becoming a magistrate and prosecutor, used the law to persecute people for religious expression. Lepage used his time as the professor of anthropology at the University of Montpellier to articulate his concept of socialism by which Francis Galton's eugenics could be implemented nationally in a fashion that would guarantee the re-emergence of the Aryan gene type from out of the gene pool of humanity. And his plan included the destruction of individual rights and the implementation of a compartmentalized society where everyone practiced a specific role or service and their reproductive rights were strictly controlled. So what's interesting about Lepage is that his system of social change and genetic change was actually the inspiration for Huxley's Brave New World the uh, science fiction future dystopian novel. Mm-hmm. But we found that Lepage himself was very preoccupied with ancient giants. In fact, all of the early Arianists from the late 1800s wrote that their own ancestors were ancient giants. So this was a prevalent <laughs> belief. <laughs> and okay. in In 1889 and 1890, while excavating a Bronze Age burial mound in Mediterranean France, Georges Vacher de la Pauge had discovered what probably to him represented scientific proof of his belief system, because it was here that la Pauge unearthed the bones of a gigantic skeleton that he measured at around 11 feet tall. And he published this discovery in Nature magazine, and it was actually peer-reviewed by several professors in the October 3rd, 1892 issue of the New York Times and the August 1890 issue of the Popular Science News. So Lepage's quest for elements of his ancient Aryans went to new and disturbing lengths after this discovery. There's an incident where he lured a group of young girls back to his lab, and he wanted to measure their heads and chests to see how many of these ancient Aryan genes they had still inherited. So to get to the point of one reason LaPalge is so important is that he was a close friend of Ailey's Herlichka, the American giant's denier. And they both presented at the same eugenics conferences in the United States. Oh, wow. In in 1921, LaPalge was the keynote speaker at the Second International Congress of Eugenics held at the American Museum of Natural History. And at this conference, he stated, I solemnly declare that it depends on America to save civilization, and to produce a race of demigods. Other speakers at the same conference include Margaret Sanger, 
Ailey Sardlichka, and Madison Grant. So here we have one of the architects of scientific racialism, LaPauge, who claims to have discovered a giant of his own, whom he must have thought of as his own ancestor, who was close personal friends with North America's first giant's denier, Ailey Sardlichka, and they both present at the same eugenics conferences inside the United States. And there's a long tradition of this phenomenon through the history of eugenics. For example, I mentioned Madison Grant as an associate of LaPauge and Herlichka. Madison Grant was probably the most influential American of the early 20th century. He was a prolific laborer for eugenics. He held membership in the American Eugenics Society, the Immigration Restriction League, the International Committee on Eugenics, and he was a co-founder of the Galton Society. When the French edition of his book, The Passing of the Great Race, was published, Georges Lepage wrote the introduction. And what's interesting about Grant is his work was used to adapt Arianism for an American audience. It was really Grant's work that convinced America to embrace eugenics. Yeah, I mean, and I think w- what, 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 people, what I want people to understand is this is not just a small little movement. This is a worldwide movement. This is huge. Yes, it was huge. The the I think in our postscript we profile somewhere between 20 and 30 major uh, politicians, ethnographers, and different types of prominent people who embraced and promoted this movement around the world. Mm-hmm. And one thing that they all held in common was a belief that the superior races had descended from these ancient giants from around the world. In fact, in The Passing of the Great Race, Madison Grant claimed the biblical Amorites, which is one of the tribes of Nephilim giants from the Bible, he claimed the biblical Amorites as ancient Aryans or Nordics. And from that point, we see that surface in the literature time and again, even in the writings of Houston Stewart Chamberlain, who was the eugenicist who influenced Hitler. And Chamberlain, his book, The Foundations of the Century, which was published in 1899, was considered the gospel of the Nazi movement. And here's a quote from that book, actually. Um, He's writing about the biblical giants, and he states, These, our own kinsfolk, are those children of Anak, the men of great stature who inspired the Israelites with such terror. To them belong those Rephaim who carried gigantic spears and heavy mail of iron. So the movement spread everywhere and eventually inspired the Third Reich and the American Eugenic Society. And one of the central tenets was that inferior racial types could not have these types of 
physically superior, very tall human beings in their ancestry. So all of <clears throat> so a lot of the the large bones that were found were were not so much destroyed as bought up by people who felt that they had to protect their own ancestors. There are several possible motives for why the bones became obfuscated at that time period that were probably all at work at the same time. There were eugenicists in the Smithsonian who probably considered the the large remains found in North America to have been some colony of their own ancestors. And certainly we found papers written by Smithsonian curators who attributed the presence of the swastika in some of the ancient sites in North America to the presence of a colony of these lost Aryans. And we quoted those curators' papers in our book. So that's one possible motive. Another motive that was probably at work was simply the desire to continue to label the Native Americans as genetically inferior by concealing the fact that the bones of their ancestors were so remarkable and large. So again, it's it's the result of a number of motives, none of them pure, and all of them the result of the unholy relationship between archaeology and international eugenics, which dominated the 20th century. Well, I think one of the other amazing connections that, that, that I sat back and chuckled over um, <clears throat> is that at some point they determined that there was also a link between some of the mound builders and their, and their mounds and Freemasonry and the Templars. Yes, yes. We, we actually found reports from Masonic lodges and from the Smithsonian validating what you're saying. There, although we may consider some of this to be absurd today, the mm-hmm. important thing is what we're talking about in this interview are beliefs that very influential people held between the late 1800s and about 1950. So if this sounds disturbing to you, it should be an example of how disturbed the people who created the world we're living in today actually were. R, the, R, R. R, yes. The <laughs> secret societies, we found that every secret society from the Theosophical Society to the Rosicrucians to the Freemasons were all of them harboring a very unhealthy interest in these bones. And it seems that all of the occult organizations really wanted to include these mound builders into their own history somehow. In fact, a lot of people have asked me about Lovelock Cave. Well, Mm -hmm. one thing that our primary sources definitely confirmed about Lovelock Cave was that at least one body was found that was probably around seven feet in stature. It was mummified and still had flesh and muscles attached, and it was actually stolen by a local fraternal lodge that boiled it in a stew and used it in initiation ceremonies. Now, Lovelock Cade, is is that the red-haired giants that the Indians talked about? Yes. 
Okay. Um, you want to explain, because people may not be familiar with that story, and you're well, probably I'm, better at it than I am. <laughs> I'm certainly not an expert at Lovelock Cave. I do know that the Paiute Indians have a historical legend about their ancestors having a conflict of sorts with people of remarkable stature who had been trapped in the cave and then either burned alive or annihilated in some other fashion by the yeah, I think, Paiute. Yeah, I think I think the story was they chased they chased them all into the cave and they set fires at the mouth of the cave so that so that everyone inside was is you know, was killed. And then That's correct. And then then um centuries well, a century or so later uh, guano hunters um, discovered the the guano that was in the. This is how I understand it. That they they went to mine the guano, and in mining the guano, they found um, the large bones, the the mummies, and the spears and arrowheads and things like that. That to the Indians proved their legend, and you know they said, "See, we told you." Yes, and we should listen to the Indians more. That's there's yeah. no question about that. We should we should never have disregarded what the Indians had to say, in my opinion, about these affairs. And you know that's a totally different culture than what we're dealing with here in the Ohio Valley and Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. The the Lovelock Cave, that culture is a totally different culture from a different region, and it's really a remarkable example of how widespread these tall, powerfully built people were in the Native American gene pool. And, and you know, there are, what, what gets me is there are still people that, that, you know, will deny that they existed, but they so clearly existed. And they, from, from the very, very earliest of the Adena um, mounds and stuff like that, they're there. They've been a part of the, of the foundational, well, of the, I won't say total foundation because, of course, there were those that were here before even them. But, but as far as our records and carbon dating can can put a time frame, they've been here since the beginning of what we can record, and and they they were they not only were there throughout the entire period, but but they continue to still be a part of our population. That's correct. They they do. There are descendants um, of the tall ones that appear in a historical record up to the 20th century. And probably my favorite example of that is a man named Max Palmer. And Max Palmer was part Cherokee. And Max was born in 1927. In his adult life, he stood at least seven feet, seven inches tall. His family claims he was eight foot, two inches tall. He had a natural athletic build. He did not have gigantism. And he was a professional wrestler for a number of years and an actor. And an interesting thing about Max is in 1963, he became a preacher and he began calling himself Goliath for Christ. And he he remained a preacher until he died in 1984. So I like to look at the story of Max Palmer because 
it really debunks the idea that this is the biblical Nephilim or something of that nature. But Max being part Cherokee connects him to the Iroquois and the Susquehanna, and these are all First Nations people who the early explorers recorded as having giants among them. Well, and and the fascinating thing is, um, along with, with, of course, the DNA that that creates a person of this stature, um, in that DNA also creates, uh, there is a spiritual linkage to a heritage that, that may even go beyond that. And I'm not saying that they are they are aliens or anything like that. I, I, I feel that, that it's very obvious that that these are people who were indigenous to to the land that they lived on and, and they were a part of the community that they were buried with. They they weren't they weren't in any way, shape or form um people who were aliens. They were a part of our society. And uh, so many people think, you know, giants, okay. So, and as you said before, you know, cannibals or they eat their children and all of this. That's not true. They were a no. part of the society and, and, and accepted as part of the society. They were, you know, in so many places when somebody is different, they are, they are excluded. They are shoved out. They are not accepted. But these, these were a part of the communities in which they lived and died. Well, remember, too, the First Nations, the Iroquois Confederacy of the Northeast, after the American War for Independence, the founding generation consulted them when they drafted the Constitution of these United States because the Iroquois Confederacy was really the first successful republic in American history. Mm-hmm. So one thing that 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 definitely means is that our own nation really is part of the legacy of the tall ones. Yeah. Uh, good luck on finding somebody that'll agree with that. But, <laughs> but, but no, I agree with you. Um, but it, it just, to me, it, when I, when I take a look at the richness that goes in to the, to the history that is that, that you have followed back 4,000 years, I mean, it it it's out, it's outrageous the the richness that that we are that we are depriving our children of because they aren't learning about it and they should be. I well, mean, it, culture, it's a, well, just just to touch on the point, a couple points actually that you made earlier in this interview with how how wonderful these cultures are, and also with the eugenics. You know, I'd like to point out that. One of the architects of eugenics was a man named Arthur de Gobineau, who was a French aristocrat. De Gobineau wrote a book in the night in the 1850s, long time ago in the 1850s, called *The Inequality of Human Races*. And this book is the foundational gospel of the eugenics movement. And in that book, he described the mound builder cultures in North America and attempted to claim these people as his Aryan ancestors. So at one time, 
these cultures were not only regarded as a type of a civilization, but they were the desire of the world. There were people all over the world who knew about them, who heard about them, and who wanted to sort of co-opt them into their own heritage. Amazing. And and these these wealthy people that that you know tried to create this one well did create the one world order or whatever um are still out there are still you know this this belief in um a, a superior um a superior genetic code and everything is still out there it hasn't gone anywhere it's, no it hasn't still, it's still at work within our within our reality, and it's something that we should be very careful of. Well, our world today in the West is the legacy of the American Eugenics Society. Uh, all the corporations we work for, the biological assault that's in our food, our water, and our air, the nightmare that is the American medical industry, all of this comes down to us from the eugenicists, and it is all a result of their influence on our national destiny. It should all be rejected outright. The unfortunate thing about today, about the 21st century, is people have forgotten how to say no. We've become too agreeable. We must remember how to become disagreeable. We must learn well, the there... power of no once again. Well, there is, there is a sense of apathy. There is a sense of, of, you know, this is what the history book says, and so this is what I believe, instead of looking into it. And, and I think that's, that's, what, that's what bothers me the most, that, that people aren't, our children aren't taught to think. They are, they are lectured to, <clears throat> they accept things and they move on, or they Google something. They don't think. They, don't, they aren't problem solvers. If you took, if you took some of our kids today and put them in the kind of um, environment that these early cultures developed in, they, they would fail miserably within the first generation. They, it, unfortunately. As much as I've studied them, I would probably fail myself. It's um, well. No, I agree with you. Yeah, uh, even though, even even though I, my my sister. Um, studies shamanism and she she does walks with people and she you know she takes them she takes them out for lunch and what she does is she walks them around the neighborhood and she shows them what they can eat you know i probably die in the first five minutes um <laughs> but but they knew the healing qualities of things well actually uh, the stuff i've seen her eat i wouldn't want to put in my mouth and yet it was probably healthier for her than than whatever <laughs> i did eat for lunch you know but but I, the, the aspect that that in nature, if something is poisonous, a plant that that is very that grows very closely to it is is actually the cure for what the poison is. Nature is amazing, but but we don't teach our kids this anymore. Nature is a living organism, and I think that if we were to look at the actual science independently without someone telling us what it's okay for us to think about it, I think that that would grow more and more apparent. That underlying nature, you know, you can observe this in the roots of the trees, for example, in a forest. It's all interconnected, and it actually communicates mm -hmm. on a certain level. So 
Well, when you when you even look at um, their some of their spiritual stuff, you know, they 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 really felt that, you know, they did believe in in, in underworld and they believed in um, a dimension above and and the earth plane and they a lot of times shamans would look for uh, huge old trees that had huge root systems and, and it is through those root systems that they entered the, the, the realms below. It wasn't naturally, it wasn't, wasn't actually hell, but they, they went to the underground to, to the, uh, you know, to the underworld. And I, I mean, there's, there's so much richness and wisdom that, that's out there in nature that, that these early societies lived in harmony with that is to be envied, you know, when you look at what we live with today and what we ignore today and what we destroy today, the rainforests are going. I mean, we're, we're destroying the harmony that is around us that we could even, we could blend with and become one with and have a, have a much richer life. But with GMOs and, you know, all of the alteration they're doing to our, our food doesn't even nourish us anymore. So, you know, it's the, scary. You know, the one of the the biggest differences between our culture today and the cultures that that I've written about comes down to what represents your world, and what is it exactly that you consider a rite of passage for your children. There are some anthropologists who believe that the reason that we see exotics in the Adena and Hopewell tombs, like shell from the Gulf Coast or um, a specific type of stone or flint or chert object that maybe came from somewhere far away from where the mound was built, perhaps several states away today geographically, is that the people at the time considered questing and traveling to other lands or other areas to be an essential rite of passage and surviving those types of adventures to be an essential part of growing to be an adult. Whereas today we consider sheltering ourselves to be essential to growing into being an adult. You know, the ancients here in North America, if someone was born in Kentucky 2,000 years ago, traveling to the Great Lakes may have been seen as a rite of passage, perhaps even a journey into another world. We simply don't know. But traveling to other areas and acquiring objects local to those areas was a really big part of what it meant to grow into the society that you were born into. Well, And, you know, you did mention that, that especially in the Adena um culture it, it was a time most people there wasn't a whole bunch of warring going on though i imagine at times there there were but but this was a time frame where where people weren't afraid of other people they they learned to integrate they learned to communicate and they they learned to share and you're right you know and and that's that's something that that unfortunately is is not a part of our reality today uh, you know and i'd like to, i'd like to say it's different but i don't feel it is before we go any further i do want to first acknowledge your wife sarah who who was a large part of this book and did a heck of a lot of work on on everything i i you know haven't given her enough 
she obviously did with helping with the research here. She's she's a silent partner today, but but I do appreciate so much the effort that she put into helping you put all this together because she obviously added a great deal to the book, and and I'm sure that you know I know for sure she has to support what you're doing, um, and and it, it's obvious that that her influence is in in many different places. The Excuse me if I say it. Your voice changes in some places that it's obvious that she's written. So, um, so I I I do want to acknowledge her work and and give her credit for it because, um, along with you, that that this is a, a masterful piece of material. And if anybody wants to, is there is there a website? I don't. You didn't give me a website. So is there some way people can find out more about you and your work? Absolutely. We have a website. It's called ParadigmCollision.com, and you can read basically almost all of our published articles on that website. We've published many articles over the years on different subjects, including the tall ones. And you can also reach both of us on Facebook. So if you happen to be on Facebook and you want to reach out, we're available. We like to keep a close connection to our readership so that we can answer questions and learn together with the people that read our stuff. So, Well, I, I know that uh, when Patrick and I did The Secrets of the Stones, we, we got contact from people all over the country. And um, this, this, this mode, the Internet, is, is an amazingly wonderful tool for reaching out all over the world and and gathering people who are like-minded and are focused on the same types of things as we are. And um, this this interview will be on my website by tomorrow, and it'll be up on YouTube by tomorrow. And um, I, you know, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to get this information in there because it's so important that that um, both of you know how greatly appreciate appreciative. Um, you know, people are of the work that you've done because, you know, when you put, when you put something like this in print, when you put it out there, it, it always seems to find where it belongs. It always seems to fall into the hands of the people that are looking for the information. And of course, it's like that Clairol commercial from way back in the fifties, you know, and they told two people and so on and so on and so on. It, 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 the internet is a is is a great way of getting the seeds of wisdom out there that will, you know, fall on on the right soil and and will, you know, spread and and you know the information will be shared. So, um, I just I can't I can't thank you enough for for doing all of your work and Sarah as well. And I I apologize for not including her on the interview, but. Um, until I got the book, I didn't realize that Sarah had been as large a part of this effort as you were. Well, she is. It just so happens that I'm the one that does most of the interviews. You know, it's it's probably because I talk so much, and so it usually <laughs> falls to me to do the interviews. Some may say I talk too much. Who knows? Well, it's it. Well, yeah, I'll, I will. I will admit to you that you know I had a husband that did that too. I had to wait for him to take a breath before I could get a word in edgewise. But um, but her touches is apparent in the book, and and I and I hope you let her know that that you know it it's obvious that she was a, a great part of this, and that that I'm sure that um, though silent, she was a very 
big part of everything that went on and the research. And, and, you know, you couldn't do as much as you do without her support, let's face it. So um, there is, there is that there too. And, and I don't mean financial, I mean, emotional and, and intellectual. So, but I just, I, I have to tell you that, that I am, you know, I kind of want to go out and look for a mound now. I mean, I'm in Connecticut and I don't, I don't believe that I, I know there are some here or were some here. I know there were some bones discovered here over, over the last 150, 60 years or so, but, um, where is the preponderance of them? You're mostly, you know, looking at, at Virginia and the Ohio basin and stuff like that. Did you guys get up to Monk's Mound? Uh, you know, have you ever looked into that particular mound? Monk's Mound is going to be in our second book because <laughs> we're we're working with um, identifying the people whose ancestors built the mound. Mm-hmm. The uh, the mounds in, in this first book, the Adena and Hopewell Mounds, the largest concentration is in the Ohio Valley in Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. But there were manifestations of Adena and Hopewell all the way to the East Coast and down to the Gulf. And some of those cultures will also be described in our future work. In Connecticut, I believe the Adena sites in Connecticut are usually non-mounded. On the East Coast and in some regions, the Adena, for whatever the reason, did not construct mounds. Many of their sites are large ossuaries, which contain multiple individuals. Mm-hmm. But they have been found. And I think that probably if we were able to see all of the evidence at one time we'd probably see that these cultures covered most of the united states east of the mississippi river all the way to the atlantic coast so they're very widespread although they did not always construct mounds the adena sites in maryland and delaware for instance they do not have mounds they're just subsurface pits but they are the same culture and people wow well i i know that uh the stone chambers and stone walls here in in the northeast while there are some of them in other parts of the country this is where most of them have survived and probably because um it was some of the the areas that they're in were the rockiest to be developed so you know, people didn't destroy them as rapidly. They're still being destroyed. But and I'm mm-hmm. wondering if if the mounds were the same way as if you know. In some cases, I noticed that farmers would plow around the mounds. That that it wasn't until they were actually dug into that they discovered that there was something there. But it's almost as though farmers respect they they plowed around the mounds and planted around the mounds as opposed to trying to level them for for a long time. So that so that there was a, a a respect that you didn't know why it was there, but the mound was preserved for a certain amount of time because you know they just weren't going to destroy it. So, uh, but the the photographs that you've got in the book are profoundly beautiful, and and you know somebody put a lot of work into this. <laughs> <laughs> we it was a this book was is the first large publication that we've done from a research project that is now in its 
I think it's eight and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, the there are actually photographs of stone mounds or what's left of them here in West from here in West Virginia. In the book, the Adena mound builders actually had a prolific megalithic tendency. They constructed numerous stone works, sometimes serpent effigies, stone circles, stone mounds, some of which had passageways that led to the inside of the mound. The mm-hmm. issue is that, well, it's, it's as the archaeologist William S. Webb said in the 1950s, you know, most of these sites had been destroyed by the time they realized how prevalent stone construction was as an aspect of the Adena culture. So we have an entire chapter where we tried to re- recreate sort of the different types of stone structures that the Adena built. Uh, many of which contain large skeletons also. Yeah, I, I just, um, it, it's been a thrilling experience to go through your book with you because, um, and education for sure. Um, and and certainly it, it it is enlightening and it does make you wonder more about these people and understand that they were not primitive they they lived in a in a more a simpler time but that doesn't mean their intellect was primitive and so many people tend to believe that that they were you know they didn't have minds and they weren't thinking and they weren't reasoning because these were people that had the same kind of brain capacity that we do and and I can't I I I cannot believe that they weren't thinking and wondering and and searching the same way we are today and the way they built the mounds, the way they honored their dead, the the spiritual feeling that I would imagine you feel when you're around these 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 mounds and and these structures, um, there's there's something there that has certainly traveled through time and is still impacting those who take the time to pay attention to what time has left them. Absolutely, I mean I I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean these are not barbarians they are not monsters um and they were an incredibly sophisticated people while i was researching the the life ways of these cultures in the ohio valley i formed a real attachment to them because it was so easy to identify with them as people and to see that although they lived very different lifestyle than we do today it's easy to see the human experience in the relics that they left behind and that, yes and and that they you know they had families and i'm pretty sure they laughed and they played um because you know the children were honored as as well as the adults so that they were you know children were definitely a part of, you know, a precious part of their community as well. And when a child died, they were honored in the same manner that the adults were in the in the uh, mounds. Well, we've actually found several accounts from Ohio of, and these are, I believe these are in the book also, uh, of what may have been family tombs inside the mounds where they'll find the body of a child, a female, and a male. And... In some of those instances, there's at least one of the tall ones among the bodies in the tombs. So certainly, yes, family was 
as important to them as to us, perhaps even more important, honestly, because in many cases, the ties which united people by blood and family in the ancient world meant life or death for the entire community. So I'm sure mm-hmm. there was certainly an emphasis on that aspect of human life. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And, and you know, I think without, especially way, way back, where without, you know, a government or, or authority and things like that going on, they probably had a richer life than, than as we come forward where where there were jobs and there were positions and there were places of honor and places of not honor. So, <clears throat> but we're getting real close to the end here. And, and I do, I want to thank you so very, very much for, for helping me out and putting this information out there. I so appreciate all of your work and, and Sarah's and hope that I can get you back to talk about this some more in, in a couple of months or a year or so to, to, to keep reminding people of the magic that is our past and the richness that we have as as far as a past and and it's something we should be passing on and and learning more about instead of just taking someone's word for it digging into it ourselves absolutely thank you for having me on the show i've really had a good time talking about it well it's a lot of fun and you did destroy a few of my of my fantasies here but but you gave me a couple of more so it's okay you know we're we're even here <laughs> <laughs> So thanks thanks again Jason and and thank you for sharing and I will get this up on YouTube as fast as I can. So good night now and thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Everybody, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Uh please pay attention to what what Jason said. He he is an amazing man and his research is is not to be not to be ignored. He validates everything that he has said. You can check it out because because I did. I I checked him and and his material is phenomenal and it does add a greater dimension and a greater richness to the history that we all share and it's something that we should be passing on to our children and and helping them understand how precious nature is, how precious our past is, and and how much more there is than in the history books. And to go beyond the history books is to find a greater richness within ourselves and and within our our community and understand also some of the mistakes that we have made along the way and make sure we don't make them again. Because, as I said earlier, if you don't pay attention to the past, we're doomed to repeat it. And, and we may be on a, a crash course here with, with repeating some of the errors that, that we have made in the past. And it's a good thing to recognize them and, and very possibly correct them before disaster hits us. Good night, everybody, and thanks for being here. <laughs>